Saturday, mate, 40 here. So I woke up at 3.13 this morning, just raring to go, and I finally finished the Jerry Z. Mueller biography of Jacob Taubes, a professor of the apocalypse. So I'm excited. I'm inspired by that book, and I'm inspired by a 1981 song by Styx, which I think is particularly apropos to this show and the things we talk about. Tonight's the night we'll make history, honey, you and I, because I'll take any risk to tie back the hands of time and stay with you here tonight. I know you feel that these are the worst of times. I do believe it's true. When people lock their doors and hide inside, right, with the big crime wave we've got going on, rumor has it it's the end of paradise, right? It's the end of the American dominance of the world. But I know if the world just passed us by, baby, I know you wouldn't have to cry. Guys, you don't have to cry. The best of times are when I'm alone with you. Some rain, some shine. We'll make this a world for two. Our memories of yesterday will last a lifetime. We'll take the best, forget the rest, and someday we'll find these are the best of times. All right, I get it. The headlines read, these are the worst of times. I do believe it's true. I feel so helpless like a boat against the tide. I wish the summer winds could bring back paradise. But I know if the world turned upside down, I know you'd always be around. So the best of times are when I'm alone with you. So I've been reading a lot about Jacob Taubes and his probably how the failure of messianic and end times hopes leads to the rise of Gnostic theory. Gnostic theory means that there's secret knowledge about how the world really works. And so... During 2015, 2016, many of us surfed on the, the rising you know, flood tide of Donald Trump. He took office, and won the 2016 election. There were tremendous hopes for what he accomplished. Now, I, was, I think I was more moderate in my hopes. I expected he would be able to accomplish some of what he, some of what he ran on, and he did. He significantly reduced immigration. For the first time in 60 years, we got a significant rise in real wages for the least educated. We remade trade policy in a direction that was more America first. We I hope happened and so now people are stuck with Trump losing in 2020, Democrats winning the House of Representatives, control of the House of Representatives, control of the United States Senate and the White House. And people feel like, oh, man, I'm living in the failure of the, the messianic apocalyptic hopes that, that uh, I had in Donald Trump. But now I understand the secret knowledge of the fallen nature of the world around me because of QAnon, because of the elites. They're engaged in a controlled demolition of our economy. And these were the major themes of Jacob Taub's work. And in his lifetime, he only published one book. It was Occidental Eschatology, and it was on the basis of his PhD thesis completed in 1946. So I've talked about Jacob Taub's before. He was the son of a modern Orthodox rabbi, and he received a solid yeshiva education. Man, I've gone mute a few times already. That's sad. So let me check out my sound. Let's play a little bit from Mickey Kaus. Richard Spencer's dating habits. Yeah. 
uh, it came out that he's now on dating sites where he describes himself as a moderate who's interested in gun control. And he was, somebody saw him and, and first he's on a heterosexual dating site, so he's not gay. Who knew? Second, uh, he's, uh, he he he, uh, he 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 was phoned up and somebody and he said yes, I'm a moderate now. I don't think he's a moderate just to get laid. I think he may have actually changed his political beliefs after doing an incredible amount of damage. Are you what you mean to the Trump cause? Yeah, uh, a little. Uh, aren't, but aren't you kind of surprised how he just kind of faded away? I mean, he wasn't a very big presence during the Trump administration. There was that first well, he, uh, Heil he Hitler a, he, moment. Yeah, that that did a lot of damage. And I think he was at Charlottesville, which did a huge amount of damage. Well, the Heil Hitler, they were doing that to Trump. It was Heil Trump? Yes. That's so fucking hilarious. Thank you. Thank if you, you, were, if you. If you were like, if you were like that uh, to Trump, uh, you know, an anti-Trump agent and trying to devise a stunt that would totally. do maximum damage to Trump, that would be it. So, um, uh, that was, that was bad. Uh, anyway, if you want to date Richard Spencer, ladies, he's on bubble. Go for it. Um, yeah, I was wondering if the thing that, uh, that kind of toned him down or, 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 or led him to adopt a lower profile if he did was when he got punched in public. I was wondering if that had an impact. Do you remember the Antifa guy just walked up and slugged him? I do. The answer is I don't know. I'd um, hate to think that those kinds of tactics are successful. Yeah. Even with it, although if they're going to be successful, I guess I'd hope they're successful with a neo-Nazi, but. You were, you were going to take this opportunity to ask me, how I could have been at an event. With How the could Proud you possibly boys? have been in a, at an event that where the Proud Boys provided security? Why I'd rather be at one where Hell's Angels were doing that, Mickey. Well, the answer is, uh, I went. Uh, there's this guy David Cole, who's a local guy, who's a conservative columnist. He is a very interesting guy because, for a variety of reasons, he was originally supposed to. He's a, he's mainly interesting because he's a. He's a right-wing columnist who attacks the right. So he like he like wails on the J January 6th protesters, like, what do you think was going to happen? You know, you fucking idiots. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, he's quite effective. And he, he, he sort of, he zigs when the rest of the right zags. Um, uh, he, um, he, he was considered a Holocaust denier at one point. Then he discovered a new death camp that nobody knew about. So then he was feted at the Wiesenthal Center. He at one point faked his own death. He's an interesting guy. Uh, Sounds like <laughs> uh, and the JDL had a contract out on him. He talked the JDL out of it. Um, blah blah blah. He he has a, he had a group and he had a he had a, he has speakers and Ann Coulter was one of the speakers. So I went to see Ann Coulter talk, and uh, and the, the there were Proud Boys lined up like the fruit of Islam, you know. Uh, Providing security. That's so all. they provide security at, at, at an Ann Coulter event where she was Correct. speaking. She was a speaker. Do, does the world they, know they, that? She, she gives them what? Does the world know that? Well, they, sure. She's written about how they gave her security at Berkeley when she finally yeah. got to speak at Berkeley. Okay. She said the police were hopeless. And the only reason she survived was because the, the Proud Boys defended her. So, um, okay. Uh, well, yes, if they're proud the of that, is, it's up to them. Um, uh, the um, I don't think she endorses 
the Proud Boys storming the Capitol and violently breaking through police lines. Uh, that was only as as you as you yourself noted. You know, there are two thousand Proud Boys. There are thousands of Proud Boys, and th those they were like, you know, forty to a hundred or two hundred at the Capitol, not as an official presence, but Did they I happened to that? be Proud Boys. So hmm. it, it, it was a tiny minority of Proud Boys. Uh, so it was not an official Which is event, separate. although some, some say that that is exactly how the Proud Boys would do it if they wanted to do it, which is they would deny it and then go do it anyway. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to, gonna. I know what our viewing audience wants to see. It's Milo. Hey, Milo. Okay, so I just finished this uh, terrific biography of Jacob Taubes. And his main claim that underneath the, the rational-sounding conceptual structure of Marxism that it had an irrational charge that explained its appeal, right? So a lot of politics and a lot of culture and a lot of religious movements, they can sound quite rational ostensibly, but really what's driving the passion underneath it is these irrational drives. So Marx contended that the coming of socialism was historically inevitable and morally desirable, but this was based ultimately on faith. So the assumption that the discovery of these natural laws of history and this provides some sort of insight into a more desirable social order just makes absolutely no sense. Unless one assumes that there's some kind of divine plan for the world leading to a pre-established harmony. Otherwise, it is incomprehensible why the triumph of the material process should not lead to the triumph of ultimate meaninglessness or to slavery or to anarchy. So this is Jacob Taub. So he says that, that Marxism and communism rest ultimately on a core of apocalyptic belief right, on a search for certainty about when the end of the current world will arrive and the beginning of a new and much better world will commence. So like other apocalyptics, st stretching back to the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, Karl Marx's history is divided in two between the evil realm of necessity and the realm of freedom and justice that communism will bring in ultimately a kingdom of God but without God. So the whole emotional power of Marxism rests upon a theory of human salvation and the messianic idea. So Marx, like every major thinker, has time-bound and timeless elements. But amidst all of that, there is this will and a hope and a longing that is eternal, the eternal longing of fallen man for redemption. And so I think this also accounts for a lot of the, the irrational fervor on both the right and the left, this longing for ultimate redemption. So Jacob Taub has completed his PhD at age 23. It was the first and last of his books published during his lifetime. So it's the work of a very bright young man. And uh, Jacob Taub's went on to tremendous uh, influence and fame and discussion and attention after his death in 1987. So his PhD shows the work of a bright remarkably erudite and intellectually ambitious young man working hard to convey just how bright and erudite he is. It sounds very much like a description of Richard Spencer and sounds very much like a description to a degree of myself at times. So the book begins in the mode of 1920s existentialist expressionism characterized by these vatic announcements about human existence a la Karl Barth, Franz Rosenzweig and Martin Heidegger. Then it moves on to the more academic genres of the history of religion placing the Bible in its historical context and the history of ideas before concluding with a vaguely religious admonition. So it is the contribution of a precocious young man to a contemporary genre that you could call the spiritual history of mankind. So the book's first theme concerns the religious origins of the philosophy of history. 
So I noticed, particularly in Germany, a lot of religious German young men in particular entered university and they, they enter believing in God with, with aims to become theologians. And then in their first year or two at university, they lose their religious Orient and in the classical antiquity world, history was understood as cyclical. So the whole notion that history has a linear direction, that it should go forward rather than a recurrent nature-like pattern, is a product of the eschatological, meaning end times, habit of mind. My father did a PhD in eschatology. So I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, which was a religion that came out of the great Millerite disappointment of 1844, when hundreds of thousands of people thought that Jesus was coming back to earth and they saw their earthly belongings. They stood out in the field on Yom Kippur, 1844, waiting for Jesus to come back. Didn't happen. And so they had to reinterpret what happened. And so the group of people who became the Seventh-day Adventists were looking through the Hebrew Bible, trying to find meaning for, for understanding this great disappointment. And they found a verse in Jeremiah that of all Israel would just keep two Sabbaths, then the Messiah would come. And they said, ah, this is where we've gone wrong. We haven't been keeping the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. And so they eventually decided that Yom Kippur 1844 inaugurated something special happening in the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus moved from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary to begin his final work of judging the 144,000 saints who will be able to live forever with him. And those are the theological origins of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, my father did two PhDs at secular universities, and he came along and tried to make sense and rationalize this belief, and he essentially tried to demolish this, this founding block of Adventism, that Seventh-day Adventists especially chosen by God, that, that uh, Jesus was moving from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. He said that was bunk, and so my father was removed from the Seventh-day Adventist uh, church ministry in 1844. Hail to Ricardo, the Godfather. Ricardo, thank you so much for the message. Hail Luke for the Godfather of right-wing micro-streaming. Thank you. So, 13 minutes and barely any comments at all. Chat is dead, bro. Look forward. Does Richard Spencer have the physical and mental makeup to have been a successful pornographic actor? Uh, I don't think so. There weren't a lot of intellectual porn actors, and I, I think the more intellectual you are, probably the the more vulnerable you are to performance issues. It's not easy to perform when you've got a whole group of people watching you and people shining lights on you. It, it's usually the less reflective personality who is most successful in that industry. Redemption with Luke Ford on Sunday mornings. Okay, so for Jacob Taubes, this notion that history is headed towards some end, right, that, that depends on the biblical point of view, that uh, the world should get better, it should progress towards a messianic ending where God make it, makes everything okay. But if everything in history simply is of equal value, then everything is just arbitrary. So it's only the notion of an endpoint to history creates the possibility that history has a plot and a meaning. And the whole beginning of this eschatological vision is in the Hebrew Bible, followed by the New Testament. The second theme of Jacob Taub's PhD thesis 
was the whole history of apocalypticism and Gnosticism. So apocalyptic is a study of what happens at the end of the world, and Gnosticism means secret knowledge. And so both these types of thought share the belief that the existing order or the existing world is evil and corrupt, which you know, dominates m many of the uh, right-wing fringes that I get to talk to. So apocalyptic search for signs that the existing order, right, the world that we have us have around us now is coming to an end. And so they then engage in action to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. So Gnostics convey knowledge about the fallen nature of the world, and they claim to know of an alternative, better order. So both these approaches are antinomian, meaning they are antithetical to law. Now, apocalypticism is more active and oriented to external transformation. Gnostics are more inclined to the transformation of the self through their secret knowledge. So when you have these world-transforming movements that fail, such as communism or the alt-right, this usually leads to new rounds of Gnosticism, secret knowledge, which is like the QAnon movement, right? You've got this secret knowledge. And Gnosticism, secret knowledge, the belief in secret knowledge, the belief in, in th these conspiracy theories that most people don't accept, it serves as a subterranean stream of discontent until the next round of apocalyptic enthusiasm and redemptive action draws people out of their shell and sends people back out onto the streets. So his book concludes with an epilogue and he, that uh, man has strayed from contact with the mystery of God and has made himself the measure of all things. He has forgotten God and man needs a turn towards some new relationship with God. That's the solution to the alienated world of technology that was evoked by Martin Heidegger. So recapping the ideas that, that it's biblical Israel that's the origin of revolutionary apocalypse apocalypticism, meaning the end times. And it's the notion in the Hebrew Bible that God should rule. Right? This is a, an ideal of politics that will always contain an anarchic element. that will always be upending the existing order because it expresses the desire not to be ruled by any human ruler. Only God shall rule us, not men. Then eschatology, the study of the end times, arises from the contradiction between the reality of the godless world as we see it around us and our faith and belief in a kingdom of God on earth. So from, from the Gnostic perspective, the world stands in opposition to God and God in opposition to the world. So in this fallen world, God is the unknown stranger. And this current world is fallen, is dark, and it's evil but it will one day fall apart and give way to a new world of goodness and light. So this type of thinking usually tends towards a passive attitude toward the world of waiting for the right time to, to, uh, for, for God to reveal himself. So the current leaders of the world, for the Apostle Paul and for many great religious thinkers of the millennia, the, the current rulers of the world and, and the prince of this world is essentially Satan, right? This is a recurring uh, religious motif over the millennia that the rulers of the world are evil and satanic. The prince of this world is Satan. And the message of, of someone like Jesus is that we're here to turn the world upside down and so that the last will become first. So you're probably wondering, what's Richard Spencer talking about these days? It's like, what are you really accomplishing? You know, like, 
you're not going to, we, we have seen it, that the conservatives do not think that you're a hero. This is another thing I remember from that Patrick Casey, like talk on, like conservatives will love us because we'll do what they won't. Like we'll go and protect the conservatives. That just means that you'll get arrested. You know, it's like the Proud Boys. Donald, we'll see what happens with Donald Trump. He's not been arrested yet. Proud Boys are literally being arrested for sedition or, or not sedition or treason, um, for insurrection and sedition. They're, they are arrested, a couple of them arrested. Uh, what is it? Uh, who's the Mexican guy or Cuban guy? He's on sedition charges. So being the hero just simply means that like you're stepping in front of the bulldozer and the conservatives will like discreetly step aside as you get bulldozed. So like, are you going to go to a drag queen? Like, what are you doing? If you're protesting, okay, but like you're bringing these weapons, you know, you want to be seen by all these Idahoans as, as like, like you're going to go beat up the drag queens or something. Like, I, I don't know. It just doesn't work that way. And uh, Ricardo wants to know about my erections. How does modafinil affect the frequency and the vigor of my erections? Well, I don't notice any effect there, but honestly, I, my goal is to go through the day with zero lust. L lust does not serve me right now. So in a different context, then a moderate amount of lust would obviously serve me. But I do have some days where I go the entire day without consciously having lust and without consciously having an erection. So I am I'm getting closer and closer to Nirvana. As I, as I get older and older, it's a lot easier to achieve at age 56 than at 16. Okay, so... You have Jesus coming along 2,000 years ago. He's got a message that wants to turn the world upside down. The, the last shall be first. He, he presents a challenge to the Roman Empire. And so Jacob Taubes and many other scholars see Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism that is responding to the growth of individualism and self-consciousness in late antiquity, responding to the spiritual emptiness of the Roman Empire and offering a new promise of community in this world, people who will look after each other in this world, and salvation, ultimate salvation with God in the next world. So for the community created by the Apostle Paul, Jesus is an anti-Caesar, kind of the ultimate abnegation of the ethos of Rome. So from this perspective, the founder of Christianity is not Jesus, but Paul, who makes not the life and teachings of Jesus his focus, but the death of Jesus. So the first books in the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul, about 30, 40 years before the first gospel. So the original circle around Jesus awaited his imminent return. But Paul preached that as a result of the sacrifice on the cross, a new era has already dawned, and the old world is passing away. So he Paul marks a point of transition between apocalyptic expectations of the end of the world and a new Gnostic knowledge of the transformative turn of history. So G Paul takes a Jewish messianic figure and then interprets his death as having universal importance and creates a whole new interpretation of the kingdom of God. It's not so much this worldly, but it is an ethos. It's a type of spirituality. And this ideal serves to erode and delegitimate the current order, then leads to successive apocalyptic moments that seek to realize that ideal on earth. So with each new apocalyptic wave of trying to establish the kingdom of God on this earth, a new syntax is created. The breakdown of meaning in language makes people from the old age appear deranged to those for the new age. So when you get an ap apocalyptic movement that we're going to completely remake the world, very exciting, and... We currently live in a new epoch, according to Jacob Taos, which is just beginning. It's a new post-Christian uh, ethos, post-Christian in a more profound sense than just that of the calendar. And so it is the task of the thoughtful individual to keep himself open to the first signs of a new day. So humanity has surrounded itself with an artificial technological shell, 
that measures success by the ability to manipulate the world and to overcome this manipulative attitude toward the world, an attitude which pushes God into the realm of mystery, we need to rediscover our proper relationship to God. Now, there was a great scholar of religion who made this profound point, a religion that one understands is, for he who understands, no longer a religion, right? If you feel like you understand your religion, no longer a real member of your religion, you are standing outside of it and judging it and analyzing it. A religion that one understands is no longer a religion. For by comprehending it, he stands above it. He surveys its conditions and possibilities, and to the extent that he does so, he no longer feels the unconditional object of religious demand. So once you feel like you understand your religion, you're no longer going to feel nearly as commanded by your religion. So one can be possessed and awestruck by one's faith, by one's religion, only as long as one does not understand how and why that possession and that awe occurs. anymore. Patriot Front doesn't attract smart people. Uh, you have to have like a limit on your IQ to jump into a U-Haul truck for a Thomas Rousseau. He's not recruiting the best. They're not sending the best. And a 28 no, Mr. Problem 2017, 2018 as well. But they don't have a uh, high verbal IQ. They have, actually, I, I've read an article about this where people who behave like Patriot Front end up with felonies and felons have an IQ of 85 on average. So they, they have a performance IQ that's higher than their verbal IQ and performance allows for pattern recognition. So you have a bunch of uh, racists who get in a gang, but they're too dumb to actually win anything, and they end up getting arrested. And that's what you get with Patriot Front. They're not. Sorry, what, what? So talking about Patriot Front, so 31 members of the white nationalist Patriot Front were arrested near an Idaho Pride event. Police arrested 31 members of a white nationalist group known as the Patriot Front yesterday in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The charge: conspiracy to riot. They were believed to be headed to a so this arrest occurred June 11. Pride event. The arrest capped what had been months of false rumors, growing tensions, and rising concern that the event could turn violent. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is in Coeur d'Alene and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Odette, let's start with the arrest. So first, who are the Patriot Front and, and what do we know about what they were planning? Patriot Front is considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, their interest is the establishment of a white ethnostate. Um, yesterday, police stopped them a very short distance from a city park that was hosting an event um, called Pride in the Park. The department chief said they had been alerted by a concerned citizen who'd seen the men load into a truck wearing masks, carrying shields, and that they, quote, looked like a small army. Um, and inside the truck, Aisha, police found shields, shin guards, and other riot gear, including at least one smoke grenade. Um, additionally, police chief Lee White said they found paperwork appearing to show an operational plan to riot both at the Pride event and along the main commercial strip of downtown Coeur d'Alene. So how significant was this? Well, the only charge so far, um, conspiracy to riot, is a misdemeanor charge. So we'll see if legally speaking, you know, this amounts to much. Um, but it was notable as a large-scale arrest of a far-right group uh, under the charge of conspiracy to riot. 
Um, and it's possible that if they hadn't been arrested, Aisha, things might have really gotten out of hand yesterday. Um, you know, the whole day One leading up to these arrests was to the incredibly right tense. Group, the um, people affiliated. Now facing charges after authorities say they plan to riot at a weekend pride event in Idaho. My guess is that since there was so much rhetoric online about the two opposing groups exercising their viewpoints and things of that nature that this became a flashpoint. Authorities charging the group with conspiracy to commit a riot. The individuals pouring in from 11 other states, including Texas, Washington, Colorado, and Arkansas. They were dressed in matching attire, white mask, blue shirts, and khakis, also wearing Patriot arm patches and logos, and armed with riot gear, according to police. Authorities also say they had shields and at least one smoke grenade. These were not law enforcement officers that we arrested. These were members of the hate group Patriot Front. These were not Antifa in disguise, nor were they FBI members in Okay, let's go back here to the NPR the report. had for weeks been at the receiving end of an intense pressure campaign to cancel it. Um, an anti-LGBTQ group was assembling nearby and encouraging its members to bring guns. Uh, and there were many other people unaffiliated with that group just, you know, walking around and through the gathering, openly carrying long rifles and hand. This took place in Idaho. Handguns, which is legal in Idaho. Um, but with the ma recent mass shootings, this was unnerving to some people at the Pride event, um, even if they were pro-gun Idahoans. Um, here's. So what? What was the average IQ, do you think, for these 31 members of what of uh, Patriot Front who were arrested? So I I'm guessing something probably like 100. What is performance IQ? Uh, it's um, pattern recognition and um, spatial reasoning. So you're, you're talking about the math section of the SAT, basically. Is it different from spatial IQ, though, like the Asian tab? Or? No, it's... it's um. That's what he's talking about. I think the, the word performance is throwing you off. He's saying oh, yeah. that he's saying that they they have like, for instance, I knew this as well, and this is why like my I mean, look, my views on 2017 are rather dark. I mean, like I cringe that like I was leading these people and getting dragged by them and lead, you know. I mean, I made mistakes. I tried to learn from. Them. Okay, there are a lot of. Richard Spencer ejaculations that I made mistakes and I tried to learn from them, but he doesn't really ever go into much depth about what were the mistakes he made and what has he learned. And when I was listening to Mickey Cowles talk a few minutes ago, he, he brought up a point I don't think I've ever discussed or that I've ever thought about. That's the enormous damage that Richard Spencer did to the Trump movement, right? Richard Spencer could not have done more damage to Donald Trump and his movement if he had tried to do all right and so i've i've talked about the damage that richard spencer did to the nationalist right to the alt-right to the dissident right but i've never really talked about the damage that richard spencer did to donald trump and to donald trump's movement to reduce immigration to rejigger our trade relations so that they're more america first to rejigger our foreign policy to make it more america first and trump got dragged in the mud with richard spencer deliberately invoking nazism and so I'm wondering, how, how was it that I never talked about the enormous damage that Richard Spencer was doing to Donald Trump? I, I don't think I ever thought about it. And my painful conclusion is I probably don't want to think about the damage that I've done to people. 
right? When I, I was writing on the pornography industry and, and citing as my <laughs> moral mentor, Dennis Prager, I mean, how, how much damage did I, I do to Dennis Prager? I, I probably don't want to face up to the damage that I've done in my life with some of the more irresponsible things I've said for, for people who at various times and places have vouched for me. And then I would just carelessly go off and do what I wanted without regard to the effect of my actions and my words on other people. So I don't think I've fully faced up to the damage I've done to others. I don't think Richard Spencer has come close to getting clarity about the damage that he's done to other people. And I've never even thought about the damage that uh, Richard Spencer did to the Donald Trump campaign and movement, which is such an obvious point that Rich, that Mickey Kaus made. And I'm just wondering, how did I completely miss this obvious point? I mean, Richard Spencer deliberately connected Nazism with, with Donald Trump in a more visceral and immediate way than anyone else has done. But the main thing is that you can't do anything with these people. And you probably met some of them. Like, they can spit out the talking points. And they're good on Twitter. And they are good at, like, bullying someone in a discord server but that's not real intelligence <laughs> you know like picking up on a little meat it's like the, the the buffalo shooters manifesto which is this like copy paste extravaganza from 4chan it's where like the, you're you're like the, taking something that like michael woodley said and just turning it into oh this is why we should shoot blacks in the head you know and it's like seriously you know it, I, I don't it's a very different type of person as we've talked about before there is a higher a higher level of there, there's a certain level of psychopathy that is a attracted to something like the alt-right because it's a way of offending people ah a special type of psych psychopathy that is attracted to the alt-right because it's a way of offending people so uh to what extent does that it reflects psychopathy in richard spencer and to what extent did he shape a movement to attract the worst in people I would say that Richard Spencer played a huge role in shaping a movement that appealed to the worst in people. And just saying, I realize I made some mistakes, it's not really cutting it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just to add my two cents on PF generally than the event, I mean, I would maybe be a little more charitable to PF than that. I mean, I don't think they're 85 IQ. Um, I, I, I would um, sort of, I guess, um, describe them as like betas. And, and like, I mean, I mean that in the descriptive sense of the word and not just like a pejorative, like, oh, I'm alpha, you're just a weak beta. Like, they're men, they're guys who are like, Yes, exactly. Jesse Lee Peterson. Like, so the Jesse yeah. Lee Peterson definition, but no, um, like they're just guys who are kind of followers and they're guys, yeah. honestly, like who, who are generally kind of like, they try to be, they, they want to be honorable and like they want to be seen as good and virtuous by like their group and their, and their peers. And they just kind of want families and want a woman. Right. Look at Nathan D'Amigo. Um, he really fits that description. He had a background in Christian fundamentalism. He went to, he was an infantryman and an infantry man. But what I've heard, he was a very bad Marine. He was kind of an idiot. And kind of, you know, not, not hated by his colleagues, but, but just kind of like, God, this guy is not pulling his weight type of thing. Not appreciated by, by them. Um, now, that's just kind of, again, what I've heard by someone who knows all of this stuff a lot better than I do. Um, he wrote this manifesto at one point before they did an IE event, like on behalf of some girl who was killed by an illegal immigrant. And he started out the opening paragraph saying, they say that, you know, honor is about doing what you should when no one's looking but now we need to do what we should while everyone's looking. So it was almost like it, it is a status signal. It's a way of like saying, look at me, like I'm actually good because I care about this poor girl. And uh, Richard Spencer, by contrast, he never has a, a look at me attitude. 
So Jezebel, the website Jezebel reports, uh, Richard Spencer listed himself on Bumble as a political moderate. White supremacist tells Jezebel in a text exchange he no longer identifies as a white nationalist and asks that we respect his privacy. So the author says, I wasn't expecting to have a borderline introspective conversation with white supremacist leader Richard Spencer on Tuesday night, but a Jezebel reader spotted him on the dating app Bumble in the Dallas, Texas area, sent me a few screenshots of his profile. So I found the guy's number and reached out for comment. Is this really you? And Richard responds, yes, that is I. I'd appreciate your respecting my privacy. This is obviously not newsworthy. I'm simply living my life, he texts me. Okay, that'd be a fair point if the data in question was not a literal white supremacist leader accused of physically abusing his ex-wife and masquerading as a random moderate skier who's into electronic music on Bumble. So I said as much to him that I thought he was being deceptive. And Richard says, I'm not a white supremacist leader anymore. The entire right generally hates me. The feeling is mutual. On basic issues, I'm pretty much a liberal gun control abortion. I don't lie or deceive anyone. So are you still a white nationalist? The notion of listing my politics as conservative makes me cringe. It's complicated. Well, when someone asks you, are you a white nationalist? And you say, it's complicated. No, I'm not a white nationalist. Not terribly convincing. Spencer tells me that life experience intellectual rethinking have caused him to reconsider the white nationalist views he embraced earlier in life. Who's murdered by an illegal. Or I don't want kids looking at this drag queen or so. It's this, it's this like acting honorable in public. Whereas most people just don't take their fucking children to a drag show. You know, like it's not on the table. You don't need to go out and, I mean, I get it that our whole culture is going down the tubes and whatever. Yeah, sure, of course I get that. But like, you just don't take your children there. You know, you don't have to like ostensibly, like in, in this flamboyant manner, say like, I shall, this shall not stand. Um, plus, so, if, you're, if your parents are taking you to your, to like, for, like, let's say like, okay, your parents, it's all, it, it is all signaling. It's not, never going to go anywhere. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not, the way it's been done in the past. Uh, but there has problem isn't so much that people are on 8chan. You, you cannot do it anonymously, first off. You just cannot. No one takes that seriously. And I would, and I, but there has to be some kind of public engagement going forward. Do you want me to just go off on this? Yes, Richard, go ahead. It's okay. Okay, let's hear Richard go off in a second, but back to this piece in Jezebel. So if you're on a path that leads nowhere, you have to rethink things, uh, Richard told me. When I told Spencer I planned on publishing this conversation, he stopped responding. So Amy Spittlenick, Executive Director of Integrity First for America, says Richard Spencer is just trying to avoid accountability amid a lawsuit he says has financially crippled him. So Richard was found liable as part of a $26 million jury verdict. He's been pulling this, I'm a moderate now thing for a few years. Like some of the other defendants, it just appears to be a way of trying to avoid accountability. Okay, when I do it, it's not okay when everyone else. Okay, so get this, let's let's get this in, in full context. All right, guys, remember this. It's okay when Richard Spencer does it. It's not okay when anyone else does it. Would you agree that there needs to be some level of civic engagement in the public sphere? Because I feel like when, no. it, when it's relegated, I, I would say, get posters on Chan, it's not. never going to go anywhere. Yeah, you but criticize it's not, the way it's been done in the past, uh, but there has to be some kind of public engagement going forward. Do you want me uh, to just go it. off on this? Yes, Richard, Please. go ahead. 
it's okay when I do it. It's not okay when nor- everyone else does it. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, how many levels of delusion is this? I mean, if Richard had, had a proud history of judicious commentary, then it might even be worth thinking about. But this notion that it's it's okay when Richard does it, but it's not okay for anyone else to engage in the public square. This is rich. But like, you you cannot do it anonymously, first off. You just cannot. No one takes that seriously. And I would suggest that the problem isn't so much that people are on 8chan and not like in the streets. I, I think the problem is that they're on 8chan to begin with. Like they should be learning about baseball or something. And I, I mean, I, I think. So this is from Richard Spencer's uh, Radix Journal, where he hosts uh, conversations with people who subscribe to his Substack. This is Radix Journal on Substack. And he's saying, operating in the public sphere, it's only acceptable when he does it. Nobody else should do it. Like, I mean, granted, this is like extremely self-serving, <laughs> but I, the idea, I mean, and it's impossible. Like what I tried failed, but like the idea of Richard Spencer goes to a college, that's the right, that's it. That's like hitting the target. So it's provocative speaker. Everyone's going to get their panties in a bunch, but it's not a bunch of teenagers and shields marching around for no reason. If I look and, at the alt-right, um, sorry, I just have to yeah. say, the alt-right would be like trying to make an espresso out of dog crap. Yeah. You can't do it. You can't. And those guys just should not, like, I, I saw those mugshots and I've read a couple stories. There was one guy that I actually, I thought the story about him was rather poignant. His mother uh, didn't exactly throw him under the bus, but, but gave him an ultimatum and said, you, you know, you either, if you're going to live with me, you have to leave Patriot Front. And you learn deeper into the article that his, he lost, his father left the family and went gay. So, He's a, he's a screwed up kid. He doesn't have a lot going for him. He's 27, living with mom, which is understandable in this day and age. But it's not admirable. It's not like, wow, you're awesome. It's more kind of like, I get it, you know, lifestyle. Wait, hasn't Richard Spencer largely been living with his mom for the past few years and depending on, on family money to get by? But at least he's able to spot the pathos and the poignancy of this young man's plight. <laughs> and your dad's gay and that really sucks, but you aren't the guy. Okay. You're not the guy. Come on guys. You're not the guy. Richard Spencer's the guy. Let me just repeat Mickey Cowles here. Richard Spencer's dating habits. Yeah. Uh, It came out that he's now on dating sites where he describes himself as a moderate who's interested in gun control. And he was, somebody saw him and, and, First, he's on a heterosexual dating site, so he's not gay. Who knew? Second, uh, he's uh, he 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 uh, he, see, he, he he was phoned up and somebody and he said, "Yes, I'm a moderate now." I don't think he's a moderate just to get laid. I think he may have actually changed his political beliefs after doing an incredible amount of damage. Are you what you mean to the Trump cause? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't recall. Has has Richard taken stock of the tremendous amount of damage that, that he did to the Trump cause? I, I don't recall that. I don't recall him taking much stock in the tremendous amount of damage he's done, period. Though he admits he's made mistakes. Let's uh, play a little bit here from Fox News 
Now, the January 6th. Complained about $9 million on Thursday. Our response and our responsibility is to tell the truth, and that's what we should be seeking. Are these hearings providing the American people the truth? And second is, how we see the truth is based on our politics. Republicans think it's a big lie. Democrats think Donald Trump is guilty. And I, I call it Trump derangement syndrome. And I see this in the, mil, in, the, uh, uh, in the media on occasion, when people hate him so much that they simply won't listen, or those who support him so much that they hear nothing. So I look at the hearings. I looked at your show this morning, uh, and you began it by showing a split screen of your guest and the video. That's exactly what should be done. The American people want the facts. They want the evidence. They want to see what happens, not you telling them, not you explaining it through your lens or your context. And the problem with the hearings, they began with the politicians. And I'll tell you right now that that undercuts the credibility. They could have been so much more forceful, so much more effective. So no, Howie, yeah. this is a long answer, but it's, it's the well, full answer. The, the, the third hearing made the case uh, that Mike Pence knew he had no power to delay or reject the Electoral College results, despite enormous pressure from President Trump and some of his lawyers. But it began with just a deadly dull talk among lawyers until we got to the dramatic footage of the vice president having to flee with Secret Service uh, as the mob was trying to find him. And once again, it's the footage. You begin with the footage, you start with the facts, and then you explain them. And those hearings would have been so much more impactful if they'd actually, within the first two minutes, show that nine minute. I saw things I've never seen before. You do. Show the nine minute footage, and then said a simple question, how do we get here? You ask a question, you don't make a statement. And I say this to all the politicians, I know a lot of people are watching here right now. You'd be far better off bringing people in rather than pushing them, by inviting them to make their own conclusions, by showing them the evidence, and then explaining what it all means. But did the one-sided nature of these hearings, no defense, no pro-Trump members on the panel, make it easier for Republicans to dismiss the proceedings and the media coverage as what Trump is calling a kangaroo court? Absolutely. You should have had uh, counter-testimony. You should have had people challenging those witnesses. But the conclusion that some people have come to is that this is simply the third attempt to impeach Donald Trump. Make no mistake, this will have an impact on his candidacy should he run. But also make no mistake, voters care much more about crime, immigration, of course, Inflation. This is simply not risen to the importance that the Democrats thought it would, and it's not doing the damage to the Republican Party that the Democrats thought it would, but it is damaging Donald Trump. Right. Well, is this all backward-looking? I mean, as important and tragic and dark a day as January 6th was in our country's history, it's a year and a half ago. And so while the media and the Democrats are arguing that Donald Trump plans to use similar tactics in 2024, perhaps with the help of state officials who weren't there last time, he's helping to get elected, um, we still face the fact that, is that most of the focus is on the past. And to a lot of people, I think, it becomes, what, a history lesson? But it needs to be a history lesson. And this is what I've learned over the last two or three years, that we have to look people straight in the eye. You tell them the truth, you give them the context, you provide them the but facts. But a lot of people don't believe the press when it comes to the truth because they think the press is so anti-Trump, and there's ample evidence of that, that they think they're cooking the books or not giving sufficient weight to what Donald Trump to this day continues to argue, and I think some Republicans wish he would move on, uh, was a rigged election in 2020. Yes, but it wasn't a rigged election. You know it. I know it. The okay, so why it. do many Republicans in polls say they agree that Joe Biden was legitimately elected? Why do they agree with Donald Trump, understanding that they have a strong uh, support and affinity for the former president? But that's exactly why. I think it was Paul Simon who wrote, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And these Trump people are so determined to back their guy that they simply don't hear any other evidence. They simply don't hear the facts. And the only way that you disabuse them is to show them, not tell them. And I go back to it again and again. It's the showing that matters, and that is where the news media is getting it wrong. The, the people who produce those hearings don't understand that you begin with the visual, not end with it. 
Um, what about the fact that uh, the media are kind of, in my view, claiming vindication? We've been telling this all along. Now we have a, a former Trump loyalist saying it. And that you don't have, you have a lot of people dismissing the hearing. And they may be right. They may be right that the politics of it doesn't change one iota. But what about the fact that you don't have Republicans coming out and saying, yeah, except for some candidates, uh, the election was rigged, Donald Trump is right. They're not defending him on the substance. Because Donald Trump is still the most popular person within the Republican Party. When he endorses, it matters. It's worth a 5 or 10% bounce. He's no longer the controller. He's no longer the emperor. He doesn't have that much control, but more than any other Republican alive. And that's why these opinions aren't changing. And that's why these hearings aren't having the impact the Democrats thought they would. Right. And on that note, Frank Lunds, thanks very much for coming by this Sunday. Still to come. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank Lunds. Uh, the chat says, uh-oh, Luke, you just turned an Apollonian into one of your mods. Well, anyone can become a mod on this channel so long as they spell and punctuate correctly and are just total jerks. Like, you should not be in the public eye at all. And you probably shouldn't be doing anything. I mean, I, I know, like, where we are as a culture, um, we are not going to accomplish anything with a rally and with this, like, militarized, like, faux. And Ignis says, I think Richard Spence is far from moderate, even though he's vaxxed. He voted for Biden. His reasoning is pretty anti-liberal. Correct. He's still a white nationalist. He just has accepted we'll become a minority and doesn't want to complain endlessly about immigration and other conservative talking points. Yeah, I agree. He's still a white nationalist, but it's impolitic to say so publicly now. Military, where they just march around places. Like, we are only going to be able to accomplish something through the development of our ideas that can have influence at some point. And if we have, like this, you know, oh, there's a Richard Spencer that the media will come talk to and he'll say something provocative. That's fine. And that's maybe helpful. But I just don't think there, we can do more than that because th we don't have legitimacy. I mean, like all of these groups, they assume this legitimacy that they do not have. Like the NJP assumes that like all of these. Yeah, these groups, man, they, they, they really wish that they had the legitimacy of Richard Spencer. Suckers. Americans are just desperately waiting for the NJP. They're not. They just aren't. They are desperately waiting for a Trump rally where Trump will talk about how, you know, NFL is woke and Rand Paul is a small dick. That is what they want. And that is what they get good and hard. They do not. We are not legitimate. And if we, if we can have, find some kind of legitimacy, it's that we actually are advancing ideas that like whose time may come or that are serious and that need to be heard. Wait, wait, Richard saying that people aren't waiting desperately for the National Justice Party to take power? But like marching around with shields to attack drag queens or to be honest, marching around with shields to defend the least statue. I think the least defending the least statue at least has some <laughs> plausibility there. But like what happened to the least statue? The least statue has been melted down. It does not exist. That failed. Like whatever you can say, we were up against the odds, whatever. It did not work. Marching around in militarized formations around drag queens, that is insane. None of this legitimacy, can work. Legitimacy comes from the way you uh, walk and the way you talk and the way you dress. And none of these guys have figured that out. Um, it's also... Um, this is what legitimacy looks like. I actually wrote a like. about their behavior on Twitter. It's like eight tweets, so I can go through it real quick. It goes, I can give us a gist. Uh, yeah, one of the things that, that these guys haven't done is show the charts of their own superiority. So they'll, they'll point out endless statistics about other people. They don't have any to describe their own group. And then uh, I went on, World War II is 77 years ago. So it's the 78th year, have they taken over a precinct, a town, or a council? And not a single one. Uh, but in looking at their actual behavior, they 
seem compulsively attracted to lashing out, committing crimes, and then dying in obscurity. They couldn't take over Lee Park in Charlottesville. They failed. Uh, they can't successfully occupy a U-Haul box truck. I can only assume that they cannot succeed in swirling coal whip onto a vanilla latte. So the question is, is their IQ no different than a felon? And there is this interesting article um, called Intelligence and Crime. So now I'm doing the statistics on the alt-right. So I'm turning it back around on them. Justice.iresearchnet.com. I found an article that describes the average IQ of a felon for... You know, Patrick Thomas Rousseau, you know, like, capitalism at worst. The world and, like, the libs are not... There was, like, a tremendous... And I got... I lost. I got pushed. Where was Adam Waffen? Um, and, uh, actually... Where was Adam Waffen? Maybe even in this call. The rest of them. Do you know where TRS? Where was TRS? Mr. Where was Adam Waffen, like, guys? I mean, what are other... Yeah, yeah, all right. Point taken. <laughs> but don't you think... The overall point is I was the only... Despite my own silliness, I was the only Radix listener there. I was the only quote-unquote based one there, even among the, the Rittenhouse supporters. So given the ubiquity of this silly boomer lib-owning uh, right-wing activism and the inability to present an alternative to it, don't you think we need to uh, go out there and just be an alternative to it and say, hey, this let's go Brandon shit. It, it needs to go. Here's another way about it. I would just say this. We, we, we could argue about whether we should do that or not, but the, the issue is what, do we, what are other alternatives to doing that? And because we did that to some, to some degree and we got bulldozed. Like to go back to that Lee Park, sorry if I'm being self-righteous here, but like the state of emergency was called and who remained in that park? Very few people. Me, Mr. Voted for Joe Biden and he's a contrarian black filled. So remember to be, to remain in Lee Park after the state of emergency was called meant that you were committing a crime. So Richard Spencer is getting self-righteous about the fact that he was committing a crime and, and the other brave soldiers who were also committing crimes that uh, often had devastating effects on their lives to, to no good end. You know who also was in Lee Park with Richard Spencer? Evan McLaren. So this is from Huffington Post, April 28, 2022. Major alt-right figure just disavowed white nationalism. Evan McLaren marched the deadly 2017 Charlottesville rally now he's voicing revulsion for his former movement and for conservatism in general. So he published a substack in April. I am not and never will be connected to the far right again. Evan McLaren wrote, my revulsion for conservatism and the political right wing is total. I reject and disavow my past actions, views and associations. Evan McLaren is 37. He says he is sorry for his white nationalist activism which he described as a desperate, foolish mistake, damaging to others, to myself, and to society. Says he doesn't expect and isn't asking for any kind of absolution. I apologize to everyone who was affected in any way by my past activities. The main purpose of this statement, however, is not to apologize. I do not realistically expect to repair my public reputation to the extent that it meaningfully exists or heals rifts with people I have alienated. I don't hope or expect to be forgiven. So in 2017, Evan McLaren was named executive director of the National Policy Institute. So that was Richard Spencer's institute. It uh, tried to give white nationalism an intellectual veneer to better forward it into the mainstream Republican Party. So he was the right-hand man of Richard Spencer and helped organize all sorts of uh, flashpoints in the rise of the alt-right. He marched in Charlottesville. He remained in Lee Park. So Evan McLaren was arrested during the day's events, later convicted on a charge of failing to disperse from a park after being ordered to do so by police. Not a good idea to not follow orders from police.
which Richard Spencer is just uh, getting self-righteous about. So the day after the violence in Charlottesville, Evan McLaren tweeted, Brothers and sisters across the alt-right, this is a taste of how it feels to be the tip of the spear entering our civilizational crisis. So when Evan McLaren would talk to the media, he would try to soften the alt-right's image. He'd say, we're not Nazis, we're not Confederates, we're not KKK. We're dedicated to the preservation of white heritage and identity. We're talking about European culture. And he clarified he did not consider Jews to be white. Evan helped organize speaking engagements for Richard Spencer at college campuses, including Michigan State University and the University of Florida. He passed the state bar exam in Pennsylvania. He was poised to begin practicing law. By the summer of 2018, Evan McLaren said he'd grown disillusioned with MPI, an organization he described as an utter wreck and a mess, and he described Richard Spencer as toxic. He resigned from NPI in August 2018 and moved to Norway, where he began deconstructing and thinking through white nationalism, a movement that he says he realized was leading nowhere and is leading nowhere. So when people have accomplishments in their people, they don't tend to become racial nationalists. Racial nationalists tend to be from, from people that don't have any accomplishments. So you attribute the wonders of your people to, to blood and to soil because you don't have concrete accomplishments like that the French have concrete accomplishments, the English do, right? Uh, Scandinavians do, the, the Japanese do, the Chinese do. So they don't need to have the blood and soil nationalism that uh, proved so popular in Germany and Russia Eastern Europe in the 19th century. So Evan McLaren tells the Washington Post, he sees white nationalism and conservatism in America's inextricably linked movements that feed off and energize each other. He describes his views today as leftist. So he moved to Norway where he lives with his white wife and child, he listens to leftist podcasts like Majority Report and Some More News focuses his time on his family, his hobbies, and fixing his house. Um, where was I.E.? Nowhere to be found. Where was Adam Waffen? Nowhere to be found. They all fled. And it didn't work, you know? Like, we didn't occupy that space. I got pushed back by militarized police, maced in the face to the point where, you know, I'm not going to, sorry, I'm not going to just die death by cop or whatever. Like, I'm not doing that. I got, I lost. Um, but, you know, where were these people? All these guys who want to die for the white race or something. They all left. And I, I don't know what to say. Like, it's, it can't work. And it has been tried. And I don't think it's going to be more successful because we're in a, a different time. I mean, in 2017, there was like a tremendous amount of optimism about Trump. I mean, it was like the world is our oyster. I mean, things are opening up. Like, So there is going to be a blood and soil component to our nationalism. But if you make that the focus, usually that has been the result of your people not having concrete accomplishments. But yeah, there'll always be a degree of, of blood and soil attachments. You see it in, in Jewish nationalism, Japanese nationalism, uh, English nationalism, French nationalism. But if your people have concrete accomplishments, then you'll point to that. So the most highly accomplished white people aren't filled with, with uh, blood and soil allegiance, right? It may be an element in their identity, but it's not the burning core. The, the people who are burning with blood and soil nationalist fervor are usually the least accomplished of their people, right? The, the, the more highly accomplished, 
they may well strongly identify with being American or with being English or with being French, but usually blood and soil, the blood and soil component is not the primary factor. It's just one factor among many. All these things are possible. You can't, you don't really say that now. It's more like the libs are, in, the libs are Nazis and we, we need to get our guns so we can kill them if we need to. I mean, it, it's a very negative, like lack of vision and optimism and like just genuine sense of like, we can change the world and like make it better. Like none of all of that's gone. I don't see any of that in the right way. All entirely negative, whining at best and just paranoid nihilism at worst. So what can we do instead? And it's like, there was never, what we had with the alt-right was a bunch of discord servers. You know, like Adam Waffen, like to the degree that it had any sort of incorporation, it was a discord server. I mean, Patriot Front, it's a bunch of kids and, you know, Patrick, Thomas Rousseau is like them. Like he is one of them. He's just their leader, but he's basically one of them. And I don't know, like, what do we not have? And I think that is like a serious place where we can engage in serious discourse where we can develop ideas where we can meet and not be meet in an anti what is ultimately an anti-social fashion i mean justified or not if all of your meetings involve battles with cops and anti-fascists like that's not good um richard you know yeah you're uh, reminding me to ask a, a question um, in your entire career have you ever met anyone who actually uh, had a vision to take over the world and was committed to it well and guess what richard is going to answer to this has he ever met anyone who had a vision to take over the world can you imagine who he's going to say has a vision to take over the world? Besides me, I mean. So, so basically with all the millions of anonymous shit posters in the USA, not one of them besides uh, you, and maybe hopefully another, at least one other, they cannot put together a plan and then just get in front of a group of people inside of a room and just announce it? No. No, I mean, they, they, they can't. And they, like, all of these attempts to occupy space... I mean, I would say the one successful attempt to occupy space in this fashion, I hesitate saying this because of you know, the trial or whatever, in, in the, the, the night, the torchlight march that was unannounced. So basically opposition was minimal. There was only like a dozen Antifa or whatever who went around. That was an example of like the alt-right marches out there, makes a big scene, puffs up their chest, whips their dick out and flails it around and then leaves. You know, now again, I'm not... <laughs> As opposed to what Richard Spencer does. I'm going to say this, bear with me, just in case we have some person out here who wants to like publish this not actual occupying of space. <laughs> it's not like the alt-right took over, you know, that university square and held it in a militarized fashion. No, it was a demonstration. You all know this. But it was a kind of show of enthusiasm and power. You know, oh. and, and obviously, every activist group does that to some extent. You know, we're, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. That, the gay rights thing, that was a occupation of space and on some level. That was the one time that I can think of that it was done. It was done as a flash mob. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the Charlottesville 2017 rally, just a total debacle and, and failure. And, you know, you can talk about that event seriously and, and talk about, you know, I, I actually don't think, for the record, I don't think it was a conspiracy. Um, I, I, think it was, I, I think it was malign neglect or, or, or incompetence on the part of the government. I think they overreacted. Um, they, what, what could have happened is that the alt-right gave a big speech and, you know, rah, rah, yay us. And then they left and then there were some fights. They're probably, you know, there probably would have always been some fights with Amazon. Yeah, sure. It's communication. Yeah. But at the same time, I know it because I was deeply embedded in it. Like Jason was just totally like, there was no, I don't know, like speaking order. He would be like, oh yeah, I'll just hand the mic to everyone. <laughs> I was like, dude, you know, you gotta like, you know, 
get a spreadsheet together. <laughs> so, you know, like, it's not that hard to, you know, put it out. But anyway, um, it was incompetent on our part, but I think it was incompetence on the part of the police. I mean, uh, reading the Heathy report led me to that conclusion, which is that it, because afterwards I was. Yeah, I think this is an important point that Richard is making. So often we attribute malevolence to what can be better explained by incompetence. So what's going on with our border southern border? Us, they're understaffed and overwhelmed by the humanitarian crisis as migrants keep flooding in around the clock. Our live, live team coverage begins right now. Bill Malugin on the border in Hidalgo, Texas. Lucas Tomlinson at the White House. But first, Jonathan Sari live at busy Hartsville-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. And I see lots of people behind you right now, Jonathan. Oh, yeah. Right outside the TSA checkpoint, you can see a steady stream of travelers here trying to get on board their flights, hoping that they don't face any delays or cancellations. In an interview with the Associated Press this weekend, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says he wants to actually see airlines in the U.S. Just okay. warning the migrant surge at the southern border, well, it's getting worse. With more than 1.5 uh, million encounters so far this fiscal year. And also we're told, get this, that 50 of the migrants who were nabbed are actually on terrorist watch lists. Meanwhile, agents are said to be furious that a disciplinary decision will be announced soon on those horseback agents who were falsely accused of whipping Haitian migrants last year. Bill Malusian, live at the border in Hidalgo, Texas, with much more on this. Hey, Bill. Eric, good afternoon to you. That's right. We are starting to push into those brutally hot and dangerous summer months down here at the border, and the activity is not slowing down. It's actually doing the opposite. It is surging. Case in point, take a look at these photos just put out by Border Patrol here in the Rio Grande Valley yesterday. What you're looking at are numerous large groups, three of them in total here in Hidalgo County and in Star County, totaling more than 500 people over a span of just two days. Mixed into those groups of more than 500 were 146 unaccompanied children. Remember, there were more than 14,000 of those un unaccompanied children who showed up at our border in May, most of these from Central and South America. The RGV sector has had more than 362,000 illegal crossings since October. They're not alone, though. Take a look at these photos just put out by Border Patrol in the Del Rio sector. They are dealing with the exact same thing. They report in the last 48 hours they have had eight large groups totaling nearly 1,800 migrants, some of those groups having more than 300 people in them. That sector also getting pummeled. They've had more than 307,000 illegal crossings since October. Their numbers are up a staggering 122% over the same time last year. Then we'll take you to Arizona. Take a look at this video. This is out of Yuma, Arizona. They are also getting hammered as well. They have had more than 290,000 illegal crossings since October 1st. Listen to this. Their numbers are up a staggering 318% over the same time last year. Many of those migrants liking to cross in Yuma because there is a massive gap in the wall where they simply walk through. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich not happy about the situation. He lays the blame squarely at the feet of the Biden administration. Take a listen. The Biden administration has decriminalized and incentivized people breaking the law. And so these aren't people coming here to, you know, be housekeepers or work as bartenders. As a result of these policies, you have literally people on the terror watch list coming in. You have the cartels flooding our country with thousands of pounds of illegal drugs every single month. So Americans are dying as a result of these failed policies. And we're also paying the cost not only in lives, but we're paying the cost in treasure as a result of all the social services, everything from, you know, health care to housing to, to food stamps that the Biden administration is trying to give to people that are illegally uh, or violating our laws. And again, CBP sources tell us there have been more than 440,000 known gotaways at our southern border since October. Arizona is actually number one when it comes to gotaways. That CBP source telling us the... Okay, the chat says Australia was established as a racial nationalist state. It had a white Australia policy. It was established as an English state, right? V-Dare, Virginia Dare, was not the first white person born in the United States. V-Dare is named after the first 
English person born in the United States. Australia had a white Australia policy, meaning that it gave preference to to European immigrants, but it was established as an Anglo-Saxon English state. The primary identity wasn't based on the white race. Its primary identity was being English, right? And English identity is not primarily based on race in, in blood and soil terms, but it's based on a sense of the nation and of its accomplishments. So it's not primarily focused on on race, though, of course, that's a component. I'm talking about the degree of importance to which you give the components. So the English feel justifiably proud of their nation's accomplishments. Now, the English have always been far more diverse than the, the French or the Scandinavian countries or Germany. Australia has always been far more diverse than uh, European countries. So you can have a strong sense of your nation that is not primarily based around race. So the English felt incredibly proud of being English as opposed to being French, as opposed to being Spanish, as opposed to being German, other white identities. So English identity was not primarily based on if you're white, you're right, because they developed their identity in competition with and in distinction with other white countries such as France and Spain and Germany. So Richard is holding a convention in the desert. It's coming up in September in Las Vegas. So if if Western civilization is going to be saved, guys, it's going to come out of the desert. Just like shut the fuck up. You're not a martyr. You know, like I have doing a story in her. Yeah, these conservatives, like I cannot believe you doxed our favorite doxed at some point. What do you, you, you want to anonymously, you want to be this like, this like terrible. They all need to have the same thing happen to them. Once they've all been doxed, then, then the nonsense should start to go down and they'll have to choose. Well, what is it about doxing? I mean, it's like they treat doxing as this like terrifying thing. Are Ashkenazi Jews white? 95% of American Jews and American Jews are overwhelmingly Ashkenazi Jews identify as white. So there is a subjective element to, you know, who's white, who's not. But as far as identity, overwhelmingly American Jews identify as white. And American Jews overwhelmingly live in white neighborhoods. That, you know, it's like, I can't believe they had their faces put out there. Well, it's like, what, what were you fucking expecting to happen? Like, what do you, you want to anonymously, you want to be this like endlessly anonymous group that are lauded as folk heroes and you have legitimacy and power even? Like, no, you're going to get doxxed at some point. You know, I mean, like, I don't, I don't see, I mean, it, it just reminds me, I mean, this is a different situation, but this like lives of TikTok person where these conservatives, like, I cannot believe you doxxed our favorite Twitter personality or whatever. It's just like, yeah, you know, okay. If she had 2000 followers and you're just like doxing her and doing a story on her. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty unfair. Once you become this like phenomenon, you've entered the fucking arena. So, so get ready to fight, bitch. You know, like I have just no sympathy for this. I mean, maybe this is because I'm never hidden behind anything, but it's just like, just like shut and it's a lot easier to be public and to not hide when you're independently wealthy when you have people who will pick you up when let's say you run out of resources that you could then rely on family and have a very comfortable life a lot easier to go public then with unpopular views shut the fuck up you're not a martyr you're you're trying to participate in the political arena 
you know? Like you either have balls or you don't. And you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot be a, a participant in political discourse while you're hiding behind some anonymous handle. I, I think you've been looking for like visionary haven't you? You've been looking for people with vision. Well, yeah. That's why we're talking. Right. I mean, I mean that in the entire group. <laughs> but just anyone who can do it. I mean, it would take one meeting and, and there would be a plan. So I think yeah. Vegas, probably Vegas. Yeah, I mean, we came a long way. There would be no, you know, I mean, even, these are small projects, but like they happen because we do meet and we get to know everyone and we become comfortable with everyone. And, um, you know, we're, we're all kind of taking each other seriously and we're trying to accomplish something. And yeah. I will make a prediction then. If there's okay. a grand plan, it'll come from the desert. <laughs> if there's a grand plan, it'll come from the desert. Like all the world's great religions, Apolloism, it'll come from the desert. Every pornographer you could just tie up on a lamppost. I mean, had a dictate. Like, basically, this was, you know, uh, he, he guy around my tape it up. Like, this doesn't need to be said. All talking about faith. Nevertheless, and hearings. Uh, Let's do something that the lesser men want to destroy. Yeah, um, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, um, I, I did note in the January 6th hearings, uh, they have these people around Mike Pence who were very religious type. They're the religious right element, excuse me, within conservatism. And they were all talking about faith. And they were talking about Daniel. Like, again, I've, as I've said before, I don't support Trump as Ubermensch or Messiah. And I think the whole thing was wrong. I mean, it, need, it doesn't need to be said. But nevertheless, it was an example of like, it's go time, folks. Like, do you want to win or not? You know, like there's 30 seconds left in the game and we're down by six points. We can actually win this. Like get on the fucking field, you know? Like, I don't care if your leg's broken, tape it up, we'll deal with it tomorrow. Go out there, boys. Like that's, that's what it was for them. You know, again, I'm not on their side, but that's what it was for them. They're all talking about their faith. There was this one guy around my pens who was talking about, oh, he was like, you know, what Trump wanted us to do was just so horrifying. And I, I was reading Daniel. So I think Richard is, is mocking their faith, but their Christian faith and their faith in the Constitution held them back from doing really stupid things. And, you know, Daniel was the second in command in Babylon, in a pagan empire. He, 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 he fulfilled his duties, all except one that would go against Yahweh's command, you know, the God's command, the Lord's, he didn't say Yahweh, the Lord's command. He was like, this was kind of like the situation where Mike Pence was, you know, um, we just can't violate the constitution. You know, it's just, oh, ooh. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, basically, go, like, this would be good for you. Think of, think of actually, again, don't, this is not from my perspective, this is from their perspective. Think of what these guys, what, wouldn't it be great if you had a dictator? You could just outlaw abortion forever. You could, mur you could just execute every abortionist, every pornographer, you could just tie up on a lamppost. I mean, wouldn't that be better from, again, from their perspective, not mine, wouldn't that be better than like installing Kamala Harris? <laughs> No, obviously, that's not considered better from their perspective because they, they've never gone that direction. They think it's better to have faith in God and faith in the Constitution and faith in the legal process. I mean, to ask the questions, to answer it, of course it is. But they're well, not they, willing to do that because they, they have a religious belief in the con Constitution as a mechanism. They Divinely have a inspired. Um, yeah, go ahead. Their dictator is their God that they believe in, uh, yeah. who is not of this world. So they have a dictator, but it prevents them from having real dictators. Yeah in this world who can actually accomplish something for them. I mean, and, couldn't you justify, you know, disobeying the constitution in order to save 
millions of lives, all of these unborn children. Like, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's like what? Well, obviously they don't. And and I think uh, history is borne out. They made the, the right decision in not trying to install a dictator and not trying to trash the Constitution and not trying to subvert the democratic process. Obviously, they made the right decision. If their religious faith helped them to do that or their faith in the Constitution, then seems to me that's a good thing. Why? Why would you not do that on some level? Why would you not do that? Because you would you would multiply the opportunities for a civil war because you would create chaos because there would be enormous blowback that would very likely result in you going to jail and not being effective. Again, if you were Mike Pence. If his justification for disobeying Trump on January 6th was, was about faith, I mean, if he wanted to be real, he would say, uh, I did it because Trump was trying to kill me and I wanted to screw him over. <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, like they're, they're, I mean, the way Ed Dutton would answer that question, which I think is true and I found in my experience with these people and that conservatives are just, they're, they're a psychological type that they respect he said that hierarchy and authority and rules. And I mean, like it's, it's painstaking for them to like, do something that that, that that damages like the um whatever like hierarchy and sort of um authoritarian structure that they're in or that they respect like someone someone described pat buchanan as the quintessential conservative um and i forget why i read this but like I, I thought it was a really apt sort of uh capture of like the conservative um sort of pathology and it said you know pat seemed to respect like institutions like he respected the church more than christianity and he respected um the republican party more than conservatism and i mean like a true conservative yeah. is someone that that just again like, like they like order they like rules they like hierarchy and I mean, like it almost like, I mean, it's, it's the kind of person that, you know, that like they get almost offended if you want to break the rules on something. Um, like, um, I mean, you know, what comes to mind is maybe like a Germanic type, but like it's something like different than just like. Yeah. I mean, that, that's me. I, I get offended if you just want to break the, the rules on something. All right. I, I'm very respectful of hierarchy, very respectful of rules. I just viscerally revolt when people start trashing the law, trashing authority, trashing hierarchy. Like the, process person who's like that like really kind of ornery germanic guy but um mm -hmm. you know i mean like that's like i mean we can describe all these other i um, mean like i'm sure there are other reasons i mean you know mike pence is a politician he's been around a while like there's probably some corruption there um but i mean it might just be you know i'm not not any more complicated than that and you know i remember just talking to you about back in the alt-right kind of just back in the 2016 17 era when it was richard spencer's alt-right um we had the big tent sort of uh, movement going like all the wind in our sails we had like a lot of conservative type people um kind of in the big tent you know like kind of on our side and um, that was because, I mean, we, we were just off the heels of Trump winning and we just had this sort of, not only this winning kind of wind in our sails, but also, um, like, because again, Trump, Trump was the president and Trump was like more or less sort of tacitly on our side, or, or at least like he wasn't opposing us at that point. Yeah. It, it felt like we had approval from within the power structure, but as soon as Seville happened, we had the power structure officially turned against us. And that was when Seville, the conservative meaning. had to choose, between, you know, go. I mean, maybe I really do these, these, um, alt-right people and these people that care about, um, you know, the white race, maybe they have some points and I agree, but. Oops. His seat real politic approach to one. Um, I don't have anything specific, but I think there are ways to capitalize on certain momentum. So I do think that when it comes to like the groomer issue, there's genuine heartfelt anger about that. And it's not racial, obviously. Um, there's people of every race who are outraged by men in thongs generating from children. Um, and so rather than sending in some, you know, idiot proud boys to try to start a fight there, there could be some kind of real social <clears throat> reaction to that. Um, and that could go a number of different ways, not all which are good, you know. So what do you think Richard Spencer's reaction is to developing a social movement against grooming of minors?
I'm just going to guess. He says such a movement would only be okay if he's doing it. It's not like being against child grooming is uh, is a very high bar. Like Ben Shapiro is is uh, on the right side of that. But I I think capitalizing on real um, anxieties that people have is a direction from which to go. Yeah, but see, this is what we did, and you know, you're, you're, the groomer thing is just like one more thing that we would have talked about and we did talk about back in the day. And when you say capitalizing, capitalizing for whom? I mean, one of the things that I have noticed. Yeah, if you're not capitalizing on anti-grooming for Richard Spencer, then what's the point? It's all about for whom, right? Capitalizing for whom? Are you doing it for Richard? So if you're not doing it for Richard, then what's the point? Is that much like in 2015, 2016, the alt-right is aligned with Trumpism and, and now it's aligned with conservatism. So the interesting dynamic in 2015 and 2016 up until the election was that the alt-right was aligned with Trump, but it was totally antagonistic towards conserv the conservative establishment and the Republican establishment, et cetera. Um, now, like the groomer thing, like Charlie Kirk does groomer stuff, Ben Shapiro does groomer stuff, as you just mentioned. So you're just like, you're basically just like a lower channel on conserv the conservative blob. You used and, the word capitalizing, and that's not yeah. the same as capitalizing off of emotion is not the same as directing it. I'm, I'm not saying yeah. that we ought to, I'm, I'm not saying that we ought to be Ben Shapiro 2.0 or Charlie Kirk 2.0, obviously not, um, but there are avenues to transition from the groomer conversation to, shall we say, more interesting conversations. But, but sure, well, so here, like, I've me, heard this if before, I can, I've like, heard this exact like, argument before, go ahead. Sure, yeah, well, I mean, and like, just, to, and like, I don't want to turn this into just grilling Jim, but um, I mean, like, just to press <laughs> you on it, I mean, like, because you keep saying, like, there's ways to, cat, like, like, but what do you mean? Like, what do you want to do? Because, and, and like, like, I'm not saying that just to grill you, but I mean, because um, I'm open to entertaining ideas, but I mean, I, I think, I mean, and like, I think maybe kind of what we're getting at is like anything that you might bring up is something that's already been tried. But I mean, like, just tell me, so like, like, um, okay. do you have anything in mind? Because I mean, capitalize, I mean, because that, that's just an abstraction, what you're throwing out. You're saying, let's, oh, well, I think we should capitalize, use energies and all this stuff. And it sounds like, you know, some, just something that some live, laugh, love girl would say, like, let's light a vanilla candle and, you know, just, just channel our vibes here. I mean, like, what do you want to do practically? All right. Now it, it's, I, I do think there's a bit of a pragmatic or real politic approach to um, reading the room. I think uh, on the groomer issue specifically, it, it is a channel into conversations about um, the type of people who promote this sort of degeneracy. If you if you get my gist, I mean, I can say it, but I don't have to. Well, you can look. This is a private call. I mean, this, this is not. None of these calls have been. You can just say it. Well, are you talking about the Jews? Is that what I'm hearing? Or yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> just say it. I mean, like I, we're not. We're... Yeah. No, I, I know I can say it. I just thought I was implying it strongly enough. It wasn't necessary. Okay. If you wanted to redirect the conversation about uh, pride, for example, um, you could simply ask why would they name their movement uh, pride and use a rainbow when it seems like a reference to the Bible, uh, because apparently pride is a sin and the rainbow has something to do with Noah. And you could ask, you could just yeah. investigate the symbolism of their movement and question what, why they use the symbolism that they do. You could even go uh, so far as to, as to ask the gays, like, do you really think you're heroes? But do you really think what you're doing 